Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Happy Halloween! <laughs> I, I'm kind of late with the episode, I know that. I have very good reasons, but I'm not going to give them to you because... Let's just get on with the episode, because you guys don't want to hear me talk. You want to you hear the spooks and scares? And I agree. So this first story is called... Why Our Town Changed Its Name by Panda Bennington I wish I could say that I miss trick-or-treating and Halloween in general but after what happened in my town last year I'm terrified of it Everything was normal that day. The houses were all decked out in elaborate decorations. Pumpkins lined every porch. Even the town had gone all out and had decorated storefronts, light posts, turned a local barn into a haunted house, and the park was filled with amazing decorations. It was actually kind of spooky, to be honest. My friends and I were all pumped up and ready to go. We had spent months deciding what to dress up as weeks trying to find the perfect parts to make it come together and hours to get ready. We even spent a lot of time making our own trick-or-treat bags instead of being lazy and using the typical shopping bag or pillowcase. We were so excited for the night to start. As the day started to wind down and we were just about ready, we had a little time to kill so we decided to go check out the park. It was awesome and like I said earlier it actually kind of freaked me out. But of course, I couldn't admit that to my friends because, of course, then I'd be the baby or the chicken of the group. No, thank you. I did not want to be hearing that all night. So I put my unease aside and tried to enjoy the time with my friends. After a while, as the sun was most definitely setting behind some dark clouds, the official Let Halloween Begin alarm went off in town. They did this to signal the start and end of trick-or-treating so that everyone knew. It was the same alarm they used for emergencies, but during Halloween day, we knew exactly what they were for, town tradition and all. My best friend Kelly jumped and squealed. She was so excited to get the night started. We piled into the car, drove to the middle of town, and luckily found the last parking spot for miles. By this time, we were lit up not only by streetlights and porch lights throwing the classic we have candy stop here signal, but also by a very bright, large, and full moon with no cloud cover. We figured we could just start in the middle and work our way out. Like I mentioned before, everything was normal at first. At least that's how it seemed. We went house to house, street to street. I noticed a particularly absurd amount of clowns with what I assumed were fake knives because, come on, no way they could be real. It's just Halloween. And an even more absurd amount of kids and parents alike and some pretty awesome werewolf costumes. I made a mental note of this and stashed it for safekeeping. We were having so much fun and getting a lot of compliments on our costumes. It made the night even better knowing that we'd worked so hard on them and our bags were filled with candy. We had walked most of the town and our little Miss Pris friend Sierra was complaining it was getting cold and her feet hurt. So we made the decision to head back to the car. I noticed the moon was even higher in the sky and that I'd been too wrapped up in fun to notice most of the other people had considerably thinned out. 
We still had like an hour before the alarm would sound, signaling the end of trick-or-treating for the year. So, where was everyone? I looked at my friends and wondered if I had been the only one to notice. They were all giggling and talking about how much fun it was this year and how much candy we'd managed to collect. I looked over at our friend Tony and he looked back at me with a little worry in his eyes and I knew then that I wasn't the only one who'd noticed. He told us calmly to pick up the pace, playing on Sierra's earlier complaint that it was getting cold and that the car was still about a mile away. That's when things started to get crazy. At first, I thought I was seeing things. Everyone else was giggling and talking, but I scanned our surroundings and noticed every street seemed empty, except for the clowns and werewolves. I grabbed Tony's arm and pulled him back into the group. They didn't even notice, but I still whispered, Tony, did you see all the clowns and werewolves there were tonight? He looked deep in thought for a second and replied, You know, I think you're right. There was an awful lot more of them this year than usual. I knew I sounded paranoid when I asked, but I couldn't help it. There was a huge knot in my stomach and it left a bad taste in my mouth. Tony, those clowns, they all had knives. You don't think... Of course, he was trying to make me feel better. (laughs) But hey, of course not. It's only Halloween. They were all fake, just something to add to the creepiness factor. But then he had this look in his eyes and urged us to walk a little faster. That's when everything went downhill. There was still 30 minutes of trick-or-treating left, yet we heard at first what we thought was the alarm. This loud howling sound all in unison. We all stopped dead in our tracks and looked at each other. Concerned looks were shared. It happened again. Now I knew I sounded silly as hell saying it out loud, but I couldn't help it. That that sounded like a pack of wolves. Then, out of the shadows, about five clowns came walking in our direction from across the street. The knives they held were gleaming in the moonlight and were now coated in a viscous red liquid. I laughed hysterically, partially because I thought I was out of my mind and partially because I was about to crap my pants. Trust me, we picked up the pace. Suddenly, the alarm sounded again, but this time it was much closer. We broke out into a sprint. The clowns started giving chase, and it was go time. And then, Sierra tripped over something and fell flat on her face. We were so entranced with running the hell away from the clowns, we weren't paying attention to anything else. We all looked down to see the source of what she'd fallen over. A dead body. Its throat had been slashed and its entrails were everywhere. I let out an audible sob. I looked around and there were dead bodies everywhere. The clowns were really gaining on us now. Now. God, I wish I hadn't been right, but... Now there were werewolves. Were they really werewolves? Surely I was just hysterical. That thought was wiped clear from my mind when I saw them bounding past the clowns, knocking them over and heading straight for us. Run! Tony yelled. We had no problem with that. 
We ran as fast as we could. We got the hell out of there. We were a few hundred feet away from the car when I heard the screams. Sierra. Oh my god, we had lost her. I looked back in time to see a frenzy between the clowns and the werewolves, trying to tear her limb from limb and stabbing her over and over. Then one jumped out of the shadows and took Tony. His last words were, Run. Get the hell out of here. And we did run. Faster than we thought capable. We reached the car, jumped in, and slammed the door shut, locking them. Just in time, too. A werewolf slammed headfirst into Kelly's door, and a clown jumped on the hood with a creepy smile on his painted face. I was hysterically yelling for them to just start the damn car and drive. Finally, they started the car and we lurched forward. Driving through town, it was horrible. It was nothing but dead bodies. Clowns with creepy smiles, bloodied knives, and werewolves mulling freshly dead bodies with blood dripping from their muzzles. We got the hell out of town. It took us weeks to come back, too scared to come even then. When we returned, the town had cleaned the mess. I don't even want to know what they did with the dead bodies. Everything seemed back to normal. Houses were filled with people again. All traces of that Halloween night was gone. We thought we had imagined all of it. I mean, really, could that really happen? But there was no Tony. No Sierra. All of our classmates had been replaced with new ones. Trees still bared marks from claws in the, the park. Oh god, the park. Let's just say we never go there anymore. The town had even changed its name. It was literally like nothing had happened. We couldn't believe it. That happened almost one year ago. Halloween is in a week. And I sure as hell won't be here to find out what happens this year. But I warn you, if you come across a town named Vernon Hills... Turn the hell around. You do not want to be here. And if you if you find yourself here on Halloween, God help you. This next story is just so beautiful. I had to include it. And I'm so excited for you to hear it. It is called My Dog Loved Pumpkins by Reddit user Bookshelf Ghost. It's a cool October afternoon, and I'm sitting on the front lawn with my beautiful family. A towel is spread out beneath our legs, already cluttered with various tools and pumpkin guts strewn between the three of us. We joke and laugh as each of us struggles to make our jack-o'-lantern look decent. It's a talent that I never quite acquired during my childhood, and my husband has about the same technique. Just hack away until something at least slightly resembling a face appears in the firm orange canvas. 
None of us really care if the pumpkins are the best in the neighborhood. We just like getting our hands dirty and having an excuse to pick at one another. Unfortunately, my six-year-old daughter has grown frustrated with her work. It doesn't have as much of a similarity to the Little Mermaid as she had hoped. She points at the untouched pumpkin, propped up in the grass behind me, and pouts her lips. Mommy, she whines, can I pretty please start over with that new pumpkin? I shake my head. No way, Jose. That pumpkin is reserved. For who? We all already have one. My husband and I exchange a knowing glance. He squeezes my foot with his slimy hand reassuringly and says, Mommy gets an extra pumpkin every year, sweetheart. We've been over this. It's the special pumpkin. Tell me why it's so special then. She snaps. I raise an eyebrow at her warningly and she shrinks back an inch or two. I'm sorry, Mommy. I just want to know. I'll tell you one day, Katie Bug, but today isn't the day. We have to wait until you're a big girl. Okay? There are tears welling up in her eyes, and she keeps looking at the pumpkin in her lap like she has never seen anything so pathetic before. I sigh. <sighs> hey, hey, if you're really that unhappy with yours, we'll go get you a new one later this week, okay? I'll let you finish mine until then. She sniffles and looks at mine, which I haven't made much progress on. The top is cut out and most of the gunk inside has been removed, which is her favorite part, but the outside is void of any carvings. She thinks for a bit and finally complies, and the afternoon breezes on like the falling clusters of autumn leaves all around us. As my husband takes on the mission of getting Kate's new pumpkin carved to her princess standards, my mind floats off to a distant memory, a time of the past revived by my daughter's questioning. I must have been about six or seven years old when my mom and I resided alone in a rural town just about a hundred miles from where I live now. My birthday had fallen on a hot July day and I had spent most of it at my fraternal grandparents' house, the only piece of my father's side of the family that still actually wanted something to do with me. They had bribed my mother with the promise of cake and presents, things that she couldn't really afford on her own. By the time they dropped me back off at home, I was elated, stuffed to the brim with cookie cake and the knowledge that dozens of new toys would be joining me back in my room. I scrambled out of the back seat and helped my grandpa carry my treasures into the house. We unloaded everything onto the kitchen counter, and then I paraded to the living room to tell my mom all about my day. When I saw her, I completely lost my shit. She was sitting in the recliner, with a little black ball of fur wiggling in her lap. It looked up at me and yapped, ears pointed straight to the ceiling and tail wagging ferociously. Happy birthday, Margot! my mother exclaimed, her smile widening as the tears began to stream down my face. I could see my grandpa standing in the corner of the room with a camcorder. I stepped forward and reached for the pup. My body was rocking with sobs. It leapt eagerly into my embrace, smothering my cheeks with kisses tainted by puppy breath. My crying intensified. <laughs> is it... is it really... mine? 
are, sweetie? You've been asking all year. Do you think I'm deaf? My mother was laughing hysterically, but I could tell she was trying to hold back tears of her own. What do you want to name him? I held him out at arm's length to look into his glittering, tawny eyes. He yelped excitedly again, (laughs) twice this time, squirming in my grip. Smoke. His name is going to be Smoke. As soon as I said it, I knew it was the perfect choice. I pulled him close against my chest and buried my face in his fur. I had never felt so much happiness in a single moment prior to that. I really had been begging my mom for a puppy pretty much ever since my dad left. She had to work lots of hours to pay for the bills and the house could get pretty lonely when she was away. I thought about this as I held him and the sobs returned with even more intensity. I was so damn happy. Smoke and I became best friends from that day forward. With more time, I could tell something about that dog was special, but in what way I just couldn't put my finger on. There wasn't a second that I was with him that I didn't feel completely safe, invincible to all evils that the world might send our way. The rest of the summer was a sunny haze of training him to fetch, sit, stay, high-five, hiking trips down to the creek in the woods behind the house where he would paw at the minnows in the water and bark in frustration when he couldn't catch them walks into town where the pretty car hops at the sonic would bring him a bowl of water and give me a free ice cream cone for the puppy therapy it was exactly like one of those corny kid and dog montages you see in movies and commercials everything i had ever longed for as a lonely tomboy living in the middle of nowhere a dream come true The only complaint that my mother and I ever had about Smoke was that he had a really weird and sometimes rather annoying obsession with eating pumpkin. We didn't discover this until mid-October when he got loose from the backyard and we found him hours later in the local church pumpkin patch, completely mauling one of the vegetables. Fortunately, no one had been tending the patch at the time and we were able to get him out of there without any problems. We figured it was a one-time thing, that he was just curious about his surroundings and happened to stumble upon some interesting-smelling food while he was exploring. We were wrong. He escaped the yard and sabotaged the church's pumpkin patch three more times after that. He inhaled the two jack-o'-lanterns that my mother and I had carved and left on the front porch that Halloween. He snuck into the house on the day before Thanksgiving and managed to get the fresh pumpkin pie left to cool on the kitchen stove. It was ridiculous and honestly quite hilarious because this dog was so well-behaved and trained that we never dreamed he would do something like this. It was as if pumpkins were his kryptonite. So from then on, we let him eat his heart's content of the orange crop whenever it was in season and even bought some canned pumpkin at the grocery store to mix into his food during the spring and summertime. Sure enough, we didn't have any more pumpkin felonies happen after that. Then... Smoke's third Halloween rolled around. My mom had driven us to a nearby subdivision for trick-or-treating. He loved going out in public and meeting new people. Despite his tremendous size, the only beings who had any reason to fear him were pumpkins. I had dressed him up in a vampire costume designed for dogs, which he had practically torn all the way through before we were halfway across the neighborhood. He still looked crazy cute, though, and it was definitely thanks to him that I received as much candy as I did that night. By the time we arrived back home, it had grown dark outside, 
and I was pretty exhausted from lugging my overflowing bag of sugar around all evening. But despite my drooping eyelids, I plopped down on a chair and spilled my treasure on top of the kitchen table to assess my collection. Smoke curled up at my feet with a yawn and was snoring within minutes. Mom kicked off her shoes and sat down across from me, grinning sleepily and shaking her head. You know it's past your bedtime, Mo. I'm almost done, I pleaded, separating the chocolate bars from the lollipops with drool gathering in my cheeks. She opened her mouth to respond, but was interrupted by a sudden eruption of barking from smoke. He faced the back door, which was connected directly to the dining room. It led out into a small porch illuminated by a single bulb overhead and looked out over the backyard which only stretched about 50 feet away from the house, a chain-link fence separating the yard and the dense woods lining the property. His outburst startled the hell out of both of us, breaking the peaceful quiet that had settled into the house with the night. Smoke! My mom and I cried. Most of me was pissed. My ears had grown sensitive with fatigue and he was being unbelievably loud. But another part of me was terrified. Within seconds, he had darted to the door and pressed his snout against the threshold. Every hair on his body stood stick straight, and his lips were curled back to expose sharp, glistening teeth. In the three years I'd owned him, I had never seen my dog, my constant companion, in such an aggressive state. My mom seemed to notice that something was off too because she caught up from the table and came to my side assuming a protective stance between me and the door. We stood there for what felt like hours, watching smoke snarl and bay at the door like an animal that had lost its mind. It's probably just a raccoon, Mom whispered to me over her shoulder. We waited for him to stop. He didn't. My mother turned to look at me with frighteningly wide eyes and ordered me to go to my room and lock the doors and windows. In that same instant, a loud banging came from the other side of the back door. Both of us froze. Smoke absolutely lost him. I seriously thought he was going to physically rip his way through the wood to get whatever the hell was on the other side. Go right now. I tried to get my legs to move. I really did, but all I could see was smoke, growling at the bottom of the door just inches away from something horrible and dangerous. I couldn't leave him. Did you hear me? I said go to your room right now, Margot. My mom was gripping my shoulder, trying to shake some sense into me. But I couldn't stop staring at smoke, imagining him claw his way through the wood, only for whatever was on the outside to tear him to shreds. My vision was blurry with tears. The doorknob started to shake. Go, Margo, now! Smoke. I could not leave Smoke. I couldn't let him face the monster alone. A voice, somehow loud enough to be heard over Smoke's barking, roared from behind the door. Trick or treat. An inhuman sound escaped my mother's throat, a noise I can only imagine a kitten trapped in the jaws of a python might make. She wrapped her arms around me and pulled me into the kitchen, down to the cold tile floor. While she reached up to grab the telephone from the receiver on the counter, 
I slid myself to the corner of the kitchen so that I could still have a view of smoke. The doorknob was still rattling spastically, the banging increasing with every second. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat. Wailing, I took off down the hall to my room. I locked every entrance that fucker could possibly bash its way through and then shoved myself beneath the bed, being sure to stay facing the door. For the next several minutes, I could only hear smokes yowling, the crashing against the door, and the man shouting from outside. Then, everything went silent. All I could hear was my own heartbeat for what seemed like forever until a sound that I never thought I would find threatening echoed across the house and sent a wave of unfathomable horror surging through my body. Back door. Notorious for its noisiness. Something Mom and I had always made occasional jokes about. Creaking open. Slowly. Slowly. Whining on its rusted hinges like an abandoned infant. Until the silence returned. And then, the footsteps began. Heavy, thunderous even, almost like the sound of hooves. Through the dining room, past the living room, down the hall. Awful, heavy breathing, staggered from the lips of whatever was coming straight towards my bedroom. The footsteps stopped at the same instant that a shadow appeared between the floor and the bottom of my door. There was a deafening silence. And then the scratching started. The scratching turned to pounding. And the pounding turned to pulling, clobbering. The wood was shattering, and the beast outside was snarling like a rabbit animal. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat. I'm about to have something good to eat. Everything turned to slow motion as the door plummeted to the floor in absolute defeat. My last form of protection against the nightmare coming to get me. All I could see from beneath the bed was a pair of oversized clown shoes painted a crusted peeling red. The entire room began to smell like rot. I was crying so hard that eventually I could barely see anything at all, which I found relieving, so I shut my eyes. Some seconds passed before I heard the wooden floorboards start to groan beneath the shifting weight of the monstrous intruder. I could suddenly feel its face, within inches of me, breathing on me, warm and sour. I was trying so hard not to gag. Something calloused and sticky grazed my cheek. A finger. Hey, sweetheart, don't be scared. I'm here to make you smile. The same finger ran along my bottom lip, then forced its way between my teeth and onto my tongue. It tasted like vomit. Smile big and wide, so Mr. Funnyface can give you the best Halloween treat of all. 
I bit down hard and screamed with every ounce of fear I could gather within my ten-year-old body. At the same time, violent, guttural snarls with primordial wrath erupted from the opposite side of the room. The finger jerked sharply from my mouth, and the staggered breathing ripped away from my face as the atmosphere was ignited with an explosion of noise. There was screaming, the sound of a full-sized adult in absolute panic. My eyes shot open just in time to see a mountain of a man crashing to the floor, reaching for his ankle, which was now locked in the jaws of a creature that could have crawled straight out of the depths of hell. It was all a blur for the most part, but I was able to make out that the man was dressed in grimy white clothing, with a curly red wig, and a face painted so colorfully it made me sick. The beast upon him was a colossal bulk of black fur and muscle, blood-stained razors for teeth ripping into flesh. Its massive eyes emitted a piercing, unnatural yellow glow, but they didn't seem to see me. They were too focused on the thrashing Mr. Funny Face. I shut my eyes again and continued to scream, wishing it all to be over, wishing I had smoke to cling to. As the monster dragged the clown away from my bedroom, the echoes of the chaos continued down the hall. I listened to the tortured cries of the clown, accompanied by the sound of fingernails snagging desperately onto the wooden floorboards. An entire chorus of those prehistoric growls and the crunching of bone. And then, almost as if nothing had ever happened at all, the house fell deathly quiet as the atrocious duo had vanished. It took a lot for my mom to coax me out from beneath the bed. I was traumatized. Hours later, when I finally did crawl out from my hiding place, I noticed the alarming amounts of blood that trailed across my bedroom, down the hall, through the kitchen, and out the back door. I was a sobbing wreck. Smoke was nowhere to be found. The backyard was dark and silent, taunting me. Where was the monster? Where was Mr. Funny Face? Had I imagined the whole thing? Where the hell was smoke? Of course, the cops showed up after it was all over. They crouched down by the bed and asked me all their questions, but in my devastation, I was no help. I had possibly lost my best friend thanks to some sicko in a clown suit on one of my favorite holidays. I wanted nothing to do with anyone or anything. I just wanted smoke to come home. The next day, my mom let me stay home from school to search around town and hang up lost posters for him. We returned home with no luck, and the only time I left my bed for the rest of that day was to use the toilet. Life went on. I grew older and came to terms with the assumption that smoke had simply run off that night and ended up in another city. A nice family had surely found him and were showering him with all of the love he deserved. That didn't change the fact that I missed him like crazy, but the idea did help with the pain of knowing that he might just be dead. 
I never told anyone about what I saw that night because I figured I had just been in some state of petrified hallucination. Then, one day, when I was in college, a few hours away from home, my mom and I were chatting on the phone. We were reminiscing about old times and somehow stumbled upon the subject of the night smoke disappeared. That phone call changed my life forever. According to my mom's side of the story, two days after the Halloween ordeal, I was away at school. She had stayed home to clean up the house and was keeping the back door and windows open to rid the inside of the rotten smell that had come in with the clown man. As she worked on scrubbing the remaining bloodstains away from the kitchen tile, a loud thumping sounded from the back porch. She immediately panicked, thinking the lunatic had come back for a second try at whatever he had been attempting the night before. She grabbed the phone, prepared to dial the police, and stole a petrified glance around the edge of the kitchen doorway. She stopped dead in her tracks. There, sitting cheerfully on the threshold of the back door, was smoke, tail hammering vigorously against the wood of the porch, a bloody rubber clown nose hanging from his teeth. My mom tries to spare me the details, but she says he was badly injured. One side of ribs exposed, fur caked in bits of carnage, and one of his eyes completely gouged out of his massive skull. Mom moved slowly towards him, and his tail knocked even harder. She said his wounded face lit up like he didn't feel any pain at all. He dropped the clown nose at her knees and pressed the top of his head into her chest. She could tell from the damage that the 30-minute drive to the nearest veterinarian would take too much time to save him. So she gave him the best final moments that a dog like Smoke could imagine. She wrapped him up in his favorite blanket to roll around on when we lounged in the living room. She pulled him into her lap and held him close to her while they sat together on the back porch, staring out at the gray November sky. And of course, she fed him bits of pumpkin until she thought his belly would burst. His tail thudded constantly against the porch wood, and he occasionally lifted his head to lick her chin in gratitude. She said that only about 15 minutes passed before his tail fell still and his body went limp. That he did not show a single sign of suffering up until the moment he was gone. She buried him in the forest that night and burned the clown nose in our fireplace. She refused to tell me what the monster had done to our baby. She says she didn't want me to carry that kind of distress, so she lied. Had me thinking he was missing for all those years. I don't blame her. She says a day or two later, the clown man's body was discovered by some hikers several miles deep into the forest behind our home. The news reported that the dirty white suit he wore was covered in black fur, that his right leg was hanging by a single tendon, and that his throat had been completely ripped out. They found a bloody knife in one of his hands, as well as duct tape and a bag of candy in his suit pockets. 
Investigators chalked it up to a coyote attack. The man's face was mauled past any recognition. They later ran DNA tests once the technology was more accessible in our town and found that he was responsible for two other United States murders in which female victims were bound to their beds, brutally tortured and beaten, stabbed excessively and left with Halloween candy, stuffed in every one of their orifices. As if that wasn't traumatic enough, during that phone call, my mom also told me that the same night they had found the clown man's body, was the night Smoke's body disappeared from his grave. She said she went to have a cigarette on the back porch and to thank Smoke for being the wonderful gift he had been to our family. When she turned on the porch light to see his grave, she was greeted with a scattered pile of dirt and an empty hole in the earth. No shovel, no blood, not a single trace of a living being. She freaked out and was about to turn back into the house to call the police until she saw it. At the fence line of our backyard stood a mass of black darker than the forest shadows around it. It appeared to be at least six feet tall, standing on all fours with its head down low to the ground. Mom tried to ignore it, but she says she just couldn't. She didn't know why. She stared at it for several minutes, too confused and creeped out to move. Then, something inside of her clicked, and a wave of impossible courage rushed over her. She managed to call out a single word. Smoke? The animal looked up at her with shining golden eyes and took a gentle step forward. She said she could make out a quick movement behind it, a tail wagging, and then it turned and went crashing back into the woods, hardly making any sound at all. I never would have believed her if her descriptions of the creature hadn't matched up so closely. To this day, I still place a special pumpkin on the back porch stoop the happiest memories of smoke replaying in my mind. Maybe it's a silly tradition, leaving a big orange vegetable on the back porch for my undead monster dog to enjoy, but my mother and I have stuck with it ever since smoke's death, and I hope that my family will carry it on during their future Halloweens as well. I've been reading online about all of the craze over creepy clowns terrorizing quiet neighborhoods, lurking in the shadows of nearby towns. Too close for comfort. I can see all of the news headlines stretched out around my mind like caution tape, and my anxiety starts to pick up as I go back into the house. Kate and my husband are giggling behind me, oblivious to my rising fear. I bring the reserve pumpkin along with me and place it on the back porch. This is for you, buddy. Please look out for us again this year. I close my eyes and let the autumn wind whip through my hair, breathing it in deep and trying to allow my nerves to relax. Please. I almost miss it. So quick and quiet that if I would have opened my eyes a millisecond later, 
I wouldn't have been able to catch it. A big bushy black tail, smoothly retreating into the tree line, a couple dozen yards beyond the backyard. We'll be safe tonight. true Halloween crime, I'm going to talk about the murders of Adrian and Sonia and Leslie Mazar. There are quite a few players in this story, so let me give you a little backstory. Adrian, Leslie, and one other woman named Lauren Mianza were all roommates in Napa, California. If you've never been to Napa, it's gorgeous. It's famous for its sprawling vineyards. In fact, Leslie even worked at Francis Ford Coppola's vineyard as a greeter in the winery. She was a former beauty queen from South Carolina and had recently moved to Napa after a breakup with her boyfriend. Adrian and Lauren were already sharing a two-story rental home when they invited Leslie to come be their third roommate. It was a beautiful house, and they were all in their mid-twenties. It was a great match, and they loved living together. When Adrian was 16, she was in a car crash that nearly killed her and left her with short-term memory loss and difficulty reading. But she persevered and graduated with a civil engineer degree and got a job at the Napa Sanitation District. This is where she met her best friend, Lily. They were incredibly close. Adrian often had Lily and her fiance, Eric, over to the house she shared with Lauren and Leslie. She was even planning a girl's trip to Australia with her roommates and with Lily since Lily and her fiance were having relationship issues and were currently not together. So they thought, you know, girls trip to Australia. That never happened, though, because on October 31st, 2004, an intruder broke into the shared home. Around 11 p.m., the women had finished passing out candy to trick-or-treaters and retired to bed. Lauren was asleep downstairs and woke up to strange sounds coming from upstairs. She soon heard a blood-curdling scream, followed by glass-breaking and thundering footsteps coming towards her. Lauren ran out of the house and hid in the backyard until she could hear the intruder leave. When she went back inside, she went upstairs to find Leslie already dead, laying in a pool of blood. Adrian had been stabbed multiple times but was still alive and attempting to hide behind the bed. Lauren attempted to call 911 using their house phone, but the line had been cut. Terrified, she jumped in her car and drove away, calling 911. She was afraid that the intruder was going to come back. The paramedics arrived and tried to save Adrian, but sadly, she died on the way to the hospital. The police and neighbors alike were absolutely shaken. There hadn't been a murder in that town in four years. Not one murder. Now they have two young, well-liked women, dead, a mysterious intruder on the loose, and their only witness hadn't gotten a good look at him because she was hiding in the backyard. That's not a criticism, by the way. Just a fact, I don't fault her for saving her own life. Adrian's mother was in Australia at the time. She said she completely lost it when she was informed of her daughter's murder. Adrian's best friend, Lily, was in disbelief. I assumed it was an accident, but they told me, no, that it's worse than that. She had been killed, murdered. She even blamed herself in part for the murder, stating, Eric and I were originally planning on getting married on November 1st, 
which is the day Adrian ended up dying. And if we had gone through with that wedding, it was planned in Hawaii. Adrian and Lauren would have been in Hawaii with us that week. It's something that haunts me. Immediately, rumors began to swirl about who the killer was. Most came to the conclusion that it must have been a boyfriend or someone that Leslie had dated. She had been on multiple blind dates since she had moved to town. She'd also dated some pretty strange characters in the past. One man had bought her a car after only knowing her for a few months. There were even rumors that one of her former boyfriend's fathers had an obsession with her. I read that he had built a website dedicated to her and everything. I actually couldn't find much evidence of that, so that may have just been another rumor just sprouted because they had nothing else to go on. Also, since Adrian had been the one they found clinging to life, it was assumed that some man obsessed with Leslie had come to murder her, and Adrian had come to save Leslie, having arrived too late. Then the killer stabbed Adrian just to get rid of the witness. In the weeks following the murders, Lily and her fiancé reconciled. In grief, sometimes we see that maybe things aren't so bad. And so, in February 2005, they were married. To honor her late friend, who would not be able to stand as her bridesmaid by her side that day as planned, Lily asked Adrian's mother to read a passage from the Bible at the wedding. Lily had also held a candlelight vigil for the women. The police were still following dead-end leads, and the families and friends of the women were still scratching their heads at who could have ever wanted to kill Leslie or Adrian. Police finally had a breakthrough in September of 2005. They had found an odd brand of cigarette butts outside of the house the night of the murders. Those had been sent off for DNA testing, and we all know that DNA testing can take a while. While they didn't get a suspect... DNA results offered that the suspect probably had blue or green eyes and fair hair. Police released this information, hoping that maybe someone saw something that night and would come forward with a suspect fitting that description who also smoked this particular brand of cigarettes. Soon after the announcement of this new evidence, two people were distraught to find that they had suicide notes from their son in their mail. These people called their son and convinced him not to commit suicide, but to turn himself in. That man, Eric Koppel, Lily's off-and-on-again fiancé, now husband. A man who looked his victim's mother in the eye while she read scriptures at his wedding to honor the daughter that he had murdered. In the previous year, Lily had gone on the show 48 hours, and in her interview, she said the following... Somebody must have seen something. Somebody out there knows something. Somebody would have to notice a friend of theirs is acting strange. It's important. It's important to find out who did this and to find out why. In some sick way, I want to know. I want to know how it happened. I mean, this is my friend. I want to know what happened to her. Eric offered no motive for the murders. At his trial... Leslie's mother spoke and said, For the rest of your life, you and your family will experience what both your victims and loved ones have felt. Terror, desperation, hopelessness, violence. I wish I could tell you that I forgive you. At this time, I cannot. And finally, I pray that never again will any mother's child grow up to be a murderer. 
Some claim that Adrian was the one who prompted Lily to break up with Eric initially, and that he saw her as the person who came between them. But, who knows? Only he does, and he isn't talking. Lily claims to have had absolutely no knowledge or suspicion of her husband, which is hard to believe, but, you know, some men are great liars. However, let me leave you with something that Lily said at Eric's hearing. I wish with all my heart these events had been avoided. She then turned to look at her husband and said, Eric, there is nothing you could do to make me love you any less. These words are just as true today as they were on that afternoon. I find that chilling. Even if she didn't know anything at the time, this man murdered her best friend and another woman in cold blood, and that's all she had to say about it. Eric pled guilty to two charges of first-degree murder. He is serving life without the possibility of parole. And I will leave you to ponder, did Lily know anything? Do you think that she's just severely in grief of losing her best friend and now technically losing her husband? I don't know. I'm not going to say either way. But I do think what she said at the trial was interesting. All right, you guys. Thank you for listening in on this weird little series I decided to do where I do true crime for the Halloween season. And I think we're going to do it next year. Maybe we'll do it for some other holiday. I don't know. Let me know if you liked it. Let me know if you hated it because I'd like to know. Either way, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this Halloween special and I hope you like the bonus episode that I had, you know, this week. And I'm going to actually have another bonus episode coming out this week for everyone, not just patrons. But speaking of patrons, I have a very special project. I'm finally going to get time to start for you, and I'm really excited. I don't want to quite announce it yet until I have something, you know, out and I don't know. I just, my schedule gets so crazy that I don't want to come out and be like, hey, I'm doing this cool thing and then be like, oh no, I just got booked for a million days of work and I can't come out with it until next month, which is not going to happen, but I don't want to jinx, jinx myself. So, patrons, thank you for my patrons this week, Lucy Roberts and Peggy. Thank you so much. Let me give you a big hug over the airwaves. I love you guys so much and I hope you guys are all having an amazing Halloween. I hope you're all having a safe Halloween and I guess I will see you next week. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all that jazz. You can send stories to scarytosleep at gmail.com. You can visit me at scarytosleep.com where there's a contact form. You can say hi or give me notes or whatever. Um, I love constructive criticism, by the way. Feel feel free to drop me a line. And um, I think that's it. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. (laughs) 